activated virus defense. Hello, this is Martin McKay. And this is Chris John Riley. And we would like to welcome you to the official podcast for the 30th Annual FIRST Conference being held in Kuala Lumpur, June 24th through 29th, 2018. For more information, go to www.first.org. And now we join our interview in progress. time on the show we're lucky enough to be talking to Thomas Fisher, independent data protection advocate. Welcome to the show Thomas. Hi, thanks for having me guys. It's, uh, it's great to have you back. Um, it's, it's been a while since we've we've spoken and I know that uh, you're going to be attending the first conference this year and talking a little bit about one of our favorite topics of the year, GDPR. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> Don't you love it? <laughs> I reserve judgment on, uh, on how, how we love it or how we don't love it. <laughs> But uh, I mean, maybe for people who are on the podcast and listening to the podcast who, who don't really know what GDPR is and how it relates to them, maybe you could give us a quick elevator pitch on on what it what what we think it means. Right. So uh, GDPR is essentially uh, the latest regulation from the European Union to highlight the protection and the management of personal data. Now, it's it's a set of legis of legislative conditions on how you can collect, process, and manage personal data. And one of the key aspects to it are the addition of subject access rights. So a person can request certain activities be done by the person collecting and storing the data, including things like changing it or deleting it, or even telling them how how you're using the data. As well as what everybody talks about, really, is the significant increase in fines. Um, so we're talking about, at the minimum, uh, a 10 million euro fine or 2% of your of your, GDP, of your gross revenue, global gross revenue, or uh, if it's really bad uh, data, uh, data breach, uh, 20 million euros and 4% of your, of your revenue. So there's a, there's a significant impact when you think about the, the potential on that that a company could have if if there is an incident and if you do leak data, and, and not only that, but the reputational aspects is is detrimental as well. The other interesting thing with the GDPR is that it, it does uh, apply to global entities. It does it, it applies to whether you're in the Europe or not. Um, now, the, the founding principle is that any company that's doing business in Europe will be subject to the GDPR. But it also goes out and says any co- any company in a foreign country, even if they do not have an office in that in the in Europe, is subject to the GDPR if they provide services or they collect you know, personal data from from an EU citizen. So it's quite encompassing. It's quite large, and the funny thing is, is we've actually seen other countries take uh, take heed of this and starting to apply to to produce the similar types of legislation. Uh, the latest one is Canada, that's talking about producing a similar legislation. Uh, we saw Australia recently uh, do that, and uh, one of the interesting ones is Turkey, because Turkey, being wanting to be a part of the EU, is, is basically replicates all the all of the all of the regulations that the EU produces, but the Turkish one is even worse because the penalty is jail in certain cases. Wow, it's, uh, it's certainly a steep 
a steep uh, increase in in what they may have previously had in place. It's yeah. It's nice to see that um, that these regulations are, have global reach and they're not just targeted at EU companies hosting or accessing or processing EU data, because um, that was kind of one of the the issues for some of the previous legislation was that it was too limited. If you if you weren't housed in the EU, you could simply just ignore it. Yeah, and I, I think that's that that's one of the reasons why it came about. Uh, you know, the EU started to realize the globalization of of data, um, and and that was a problem for them as respects to the fundamental rights of an EU citizen. Um, Because, I mean, this this all elevates from the fundamental rights of an EU citizen, which is that they have the right to be protected against anything. And, you know, they have the right to to privacy and things like that. Um, You know, this is a key aspect of, it's a fundamental thing now in Europe um, because of the history. I mean, most people relate it to the history of Europe and how we've, you know, suffered over the years in terms of profiling of, of individuals and what that profiling has led to. So there's there's always the skepticism on on use of personal data, but I mean we've you know the the, the previous directive um, and had some implications and you know, the EU did try to use it to uh, address some of these personal data aspects. I mean we know that it it you know it's gone out and and actually targeted certain companies under the directive. Now it's going to be easier under the GDPR. So it's going to be interesting times. I mean. I'm just waiting for the first actual case to to reach the EUC, uh, EUCJ, which is European Court of Justice, uh, and see what actually happens in terms of how it, how it'll pan out. Now, your talk is called "Don't Ignore GDPR." It matters now. Are are there many organizations that are are actually ignoring it? I I know that some of the organizations I've dealt with were talking about it two years ago, but are are some of the smaller ones ignoring it and pretending it won't apply to them? Yeah, a lot of smaller smaller companies are ignoring it. Um, so it's well, they're not ignoring it. They just don't have the cap capacity to process it, right? Um, I, I mean, I've I've regularly in discussions with people. So, for example, based in the U.S. and like, does GDPR apply to me? Why am I? Why do I have to do this, right? And what, we're like fifteen, well, well, a month away from the from the date, right? Um, so there's. There is an aspect of non-understanding, but there's also an aspect of wait and see, uh, because there are some companies, yeah, and I think they've changed position since I've talked to them, but there were some companies that would tell me, oh, the, the, the DPA, so DPA is a data protection authority, so those are the local government or non-governmental bodies that manage the, the aspects of, of regulating data protection that the DPAs would never be able to 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 actually carry out all the things that are required by the regulation and all and be able to process all of this all of these data protection requests. The problem is, if one company fails and one p- company gets fined and one company says, "I'm just paying the fine because I don't want to deal with it anymore," um, that's self-funding DPAs. If you think about it, the level of fining that could potentially happen is is self-funding. Stepping back a minute, though. Um, the, the problem is, is that a lot of people think that way, but the reality is, is DPAs are not there to just dish out fines. So if you read the regulation properly, a DPA is there to also help you get into compli- get into compliance with the with the GDPR and make sure that you're doing the right activities for data protection. You won't systematically get fined for the for the at first. You'll get fined if you constantly, uh, you know, ignore the law and constantly don't do anything to 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 help it. While I focus this, you know, this talk 
is less about that aspect, but more about the aspects of the implications of, of the GDPR on uh, things like, uh, you know, the incident response process, things like IT, uh, the IT department, because that's ignored a lot of times in corporations. I'm actually talking with this one company here in the UK. They've had a GDPR team for the past year that's been basically been locked up, uh, working on its own, not really talking with the rest of the organization, pulling out these documents, well, a list of documents that need to be produced by all the different business units, and then nowhere near being ready for the 25th of May, right? And the, the issue is, is that um, the the IT guys approached me and said, look, we, we actually don't know what to do, Right. We don't know what our responsibilities are and what we need to do to be to comply with the with the regulation. And you know, I think that um, I, I did this uh, I did this talk a little bit of this talk at, at ShmooCon in, in January, and I got some of the same questions in January from 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 you know from people in the U.S. It's like we actually don't know what to do, and the problem here is that essentially everybody's been treat, treating this as a compliance exercise. There's one problem. The GDPR isn't a compliance exercise, right? It is a risk management exercise at minimum, but it's also a cultural shift. There is no checklist that you can have to go to the DPA and say, oh, I'm compliant. Uh, you know, I got breached, but I was compliant. There is a provision to have a certification, but it's like an ISO type certification, right? So everybody that's treating this as a compliance activity and saying, oh, we're just going to build a bunch of policies and procedures and we'll be okay, they're completely wrong because they haven't really thought this through. It, the simple aspect of having to respond to an incident or having to declare if personal data has been breached within 72 hours of the detection of the breach. I mean, how many organizations do you think have, have adopted their incident response process to actually deal with that? Yeah, right? that's, 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 a, that's a very short deadline for a lot of organizations. And, and we could well be getting into a situation where the 72-hour deadline means that people start ringing alarm bells before they truly know what's happened which is yeah. not necessarily a good thing for the industry. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd rather that information be out there, but companies could be basically saying, hey, we're breached, we don't know how any of this happened, because they have to announce at that point. Well, I mean, yeah. Chris, you, you, all of us have dealt with companies where it takes 72 hours or more just to determine the, the level of the breach and the breadth of the breach. So how is that really a reasonable requirement? Well, it... It's it's feasible. It's just that you the the problem is is when we look at it the way when you when when we talk about it that way right when we look at the way, the traditional way we're doing it, um, we focus on as you said understanding how we've been breached and where we and and what the reasons are well who who breached us and things like that. We don't have the aspects of actually looking at what the impact on the what what was impacted during the breach, and let's clarify one thing. And this is this is some of the you know lack. Well, I'd say potentially, you know, some of the over-exaggeration and the fight around this is you actually only need to declare a personal data breach if it impacts the ability of the data subject to be secure, to be safe, right? So if, for example, you breach a username and password, probably not a reason to declare it, to, the, to go tell the user that his username and passwords have been breached. If there's a home address, there's a, there's a risk to that user. So then you have to declare it. So right? so if they if they reset the the user's password and inform them that they've had their password reset due to suspicious activity, then they wouldn't need to to do an, a a breach announcement. 
Not necessarily. It depends whatever data is associated, personal data is associated with that with that breach. Well, it does raise right. the question, and, and there's a number of, of companies, many, many companies out there who, when you talk to them about personal data, have very differing opinions on what personal data is. And I know that you're highlighting a couple of specific incident response examples, IP addresses, IMEI numbers, biometric information. Um, there's also been some ongoing discussions over the last month or so about whether or not who is records are, are even possible anymore based on GDPR and, and the amount of data that it's sharing. Um, is, is there a definitive guide somewhere where people can look at it and say, this is personal data, this isn't personal data, or is this still a judgment call? Uh, it's more of a judgment call because the definition is any data that can can allow you to re-identify a, a data subject or a person um, either directly or indirectly. The problem is the indirectly, which becomes complicated. That's why IMEI, IP addresses, things like that. Um, so. Uh, I'm actually uh, running a. I've actually started a, a GitHub uh, page to actually start collecting, you know, what different types of personal data. I actually go into that into the in the presentation because uh, having you know doing data protection for that you know for a number of years now, um, I've gone through all this activity of actually identifying all of the potential items that could be classified as personal data if they're associated to other pieces of information and things like that. Um, what I find mostly is that organizations um, take the classic definition of PII, uh, you know, so the classic definition that most vendors will tell you, you know, you know name, uh, first name, address, and things like that. Uh, but when you look at the ability to re-identify a person, uh, you, uh, you know, you have to take into account images, you have to take into account hair color, uh, height, stature, <laughs> skin color, things like that. And it, it goes all the way to, um, you know, the if you're managing CCTV, that's personal data. That's classified oh. as personal data. So what's London going to do with having the most uh, CCTVs per capita of anywhere in the world? So it's ex well the uh, private CCTV for businesses that will be co that's covered, and I, you know, I've done I've talked to a lot of companies in the UK. Um, so essentially, at that stage, you as long as you don't store it for a long time, uh, you you do have you do need it because it's you know it's a legitimate security reason for for processing that data. Uh, you have to you know kind of have somewhere information on how you how you store it, but also how you uh, re uh, re remove it after a period of time. Um, mm. When it comes to government type CCTV, that's excluded anyway because the GDPR excludes provisions for um, uh, physical security, uh, you know, government physical security and things like that, certain police activities and all that. Which makes sense because obviously governments don't need to be as secure as uh, companies. Of course not. Yes. Exactly. I mean, they never have leaks, right? <laughs> it, it I seems almost it... sense sarcasm. Oh, no, no, there would be no sarcasm on this podcast. I believe we, we have to put a specific I'm tag. I'm being sarcastic. The UK <laughs> does a really good job of, of protecting its information, right? I mean, government information is really protected. I mean, the minister yesterday didn't resign because somebody, told, somebody actually disproved what she was saying in Parliament. <laughs> uh, well, uh, alternative facts being what they are. 
Um, I, I can imagine that uh, the number one search term on the day after GDPR becomes active will be what is GDPR, much like the, the Brexit number one search was what is the European Union uh, <laughs> and what does Brexit mean. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of companies out there that, that haven't thought about this. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I know you, you kind of, you're putting an, an, inter, an incident response slant on this, obviously, for, for, the, for the audience, and, and I think that's a really, really kind of good thing to do, because I think these teams may not have, have previously thought about it. Um, and what's the one thing that you think incident response teams can do four weeks out if they haven't done anything to, to even see whether or not they're about to, to hit a, a huge issue? Um, uh, so there's two aspects that I recommend. Number one, work with the businesses to kind of understand if they've done a data mapping. So one of the things I recommend is that um, you actually go about and do a data mapping of how you're managing personal data. Uh, and that, sh that should normally be the business and application activities. So uh, an incident response team, if they can have access, if they have access to that map, they can see potentially where there's going to be an issue or where there's a potential for personal data to be stored and where you might need to monitor a little bit heavily. One of the key aspects of GDPR is accountability. So if you can account for for any aspects of what you're trying to do to to ensure that the you know personal data is protected, and as part of that, like looking at um, how you potentially respond to a personal data breach if you're accounting, you know if you if you highlight that you check the you know XYZ database because it was a target of an attack and you know and you've made sure that nothing's been changed and nothing's been destroyed. Things like that, right? It's, it's a lot of it's about accountability, demonstrating that you're taking this seriously and you're protecting the data. And and, and this is uh, so I'm going to sidetrack a bit. And this is one of the problems I have when people talk about this as privacy, because with privacy, there's a sort sort of connotation that you're not allowed to use the data, and you're not allowed to basically process that personal data. And that's not what the GDPR is about. The GDPR is about setting a regulation so that you understand as an organization what your responsibilities are on use well collecting that data using that data and processing that data in a secure manner there's nothing that says that you cannot use that data right let me rephrase that <laughs> unless it's um it's sensitive data and you're not supposed to be collecting it anyway so that's a different category kind of yeah. category <laughs> but th then the other aspect i would say the more long-term aspect is to look at how security, you know, as not just the incident response team, but this whole security team, how are you going to look at tracking what a breach is under the GDPR? Because, you know, when you think, I mean, connotation of breach is, uh, oh, we've lost data, right? Or data's been exfiltrated. A breach under the definitions of GDPR is exfiltration, uh, mis, mis, uh, malicious, malicious destruction, i.e. if you get ransomware, you have to declare that if it's got potential data that's sensitive. Um, malicious changes. So if somebody outside of the normal processing activity changes the data, that's considered a breach. And there's one more I can't remember. Oh, and it'll be in your malicious slides. deletion. Malicious deletion. So if you erase the data in any form. It seems it seems like a very broad spread. I mean, it makes sense. It brings it more in line with kind of the CEI. Uh, brings it more in line with the the CIA triad, right? Where you have confidentiality, yeah. 
confidentiality, integrity, and availability. It it seems like a, a different view of, of how we've previously looked at breaches, where breaches, as you said, have previously been this data was stolen and now someone else has access. This looks at it from a from a different avenue, and I could see this being almost the more sensible way of measuring it. Um, but yeah. I can also see companies being confused by this. Yeah, it's 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 extremely complicated because. You know, number one, most companies aren't set up to do that. They might have, you know, a data classification tool. They might have a um, data discovery tool, but they might not have, or they might not be able to use a tool that actually monitors what's happening to the data, right? Or the different aspects of what's happening to the data. Um, and this this is one of the things I, I try to cover in 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 my talk is how you how you can do simple approaches to to kind of oversee this. Um, to a certain extent, but without going into some complicated tools, you you basically, uh, you know, you you have to rethink the way that you're you're tracking and monitoring what's going on in your environment. I mean, that's that's essentially the 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 gist of uh, of the problem, right? You you need to think about how am I going to manage this personal data. So you mentioned earlier that it was going to be up to a four percent of. Uh, global profits that you can be um, fined. Is there any personal responsibility in GDPR for the CEO or for anyone in the company? Sorry, any what? I didn't hear that. Personal responsibility. Personal, yeah, so. I'm sorry, act- quick, quickly, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's 4% or 2%? Because you said 2%. So it's both. So it depends on the type of violation. Uh-huh. It depends on which articles you you're in breach of or you're not complying with. And it depends on the type of data. So, for example, if you're use if you're managing what they call sensitive data, so that that includes things like political affiliation, trade union affiliations, criminal records, uh, race, uh, and some other stuff, you basically you'll you'll automatically be in the higher bracket of fines. Um, if you have done all of your footwork, you've done a lot of things, you you can you. But you're missing certain, you're not complying with certain articles, or you've done something wrong. That's more the two percent level of fines. So the, the, there's two brackets essentially of fines. So that that's where you that's where the two percent and the four percent confusion comes from. From and also because you know most most vendors and most people that have been pushing all this stuff have been talking about the four percent only. You know, it's like so yeah, but you, there's a lot more it's a lot more complicated. And I try to cover that in in, in my talk of the difference aspects of what finding really is. So as as for responsibility, so if the GDPR defines that it's the organization and the board that's responsible. Right. So they there is also a what they call a data protection officer, a DPO. So his responsibility is to manage and, and coordinate all of the data protection activities, but also be the single point of contact in terms of breach notifications, in terms of, re- of um, responding to DPA requests, and in terms of responding to eventually to to uh, complaints from from uh, data subjects. But the responsibility is defined at the highest level in the GDPR. Well. This is Chris Martin. We've been talking to Thomas Fisher, and hopefully, Thomas, by the time we get to the first conference, you'll actually have one or two um, live instances to talk about with GDPR. Yeah, I, I think that I think there's one that's going to be very that's probably going to hit because one one of the things that people don't realize is the GDPR has actually been in effect since May 2016. Enforcement starts next month. 
Well, it sounds like it's going to be an exciting time then. So, uh, (laughs) well, uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation in Kuala Lumpur and uh, it should uh, definitely be an interesting interesting presentation. So thank you very much for taking the time to discuss things. Thanks, Chris, Chris and Martin. It was great to talk to you again. Good to talk to you too. You've been listening to the official podcast of the 30th Annual First Conference in Kuala Lumpur, held June 24th to the 29th, 2018. For more information, please check www.first.org. Thank you and have a good day.